Find your place in Luke chapter 9. Let me just take a, a moment here to reference way back to verse 22. That passage we encountered an enormously long time ago. A few of us probably remember. It's been a few weeks. It's been a few weeks. But I know our memories are bad. Our flesh tugs at us to dismiss or delay whatever Christ and His Word requires us to do. And, and folks, if it weren't for the same gravitational pull I feel of my flesh... Um, a pastor could become cynical if it wasn't a correct understanding of the flesh and, and how slow we are of hearing. Uh, but I too feel the unrelenting pull of the world and of the flesh, as do you. Yet we also feel the pull of the Spirit, which wars against the flesh. So the Bible provides a pattern of stirring us by way of reminder, by way of reminder, by repeating directives. The Holy Spirit knows that indwelt people, spirit indwelt people of God uh, will eventually awaken. They will embrace what the Spirit has for their life and what He is calling Christians to do. And unbelievers may grow weary. They may grow dull in hearing. They might fall away. And in doing so, Christ and the Holy Spirit will purge and purify the bride of Christ. The Apostle Peter said, This is now, beloved, the second letter I'm writing to you in which I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the words spoken beforehand by the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior spoken by your apostles. Peter then goes on to explain in 2 Peter 3 how the day of the Lord, it's coming like a thief. It's coming. Do we understand that? The day of the Lord is coming like a thief thief, and all opportunities to serve Christ from that point forward will be forfeited. So in stirring us all by way of reminder, let's review what Jesus warned his disciples as recently as Luke chapter 9 verse 22 when he says this, the son of man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and raised up on the third day. And Jesus was saying to them all, if anyone, remember, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake, he is the one who will save it. For what is a man profited if he gains the whole world and forfeits himself. Or in eight, uh, Mark 8.36 he adds, if he forfeits his soul. What we are seeing in Luke chapter 9 is that after repeated exhortations by Christ, uh, long periods of teaching, some following him or desiring to follow him, they, they still just don't get it. They, they don't get it. They, they don't comprehend the voice that is calling out to them to sacrifice their lives for Christ and His church. If you recall when we studied that passage earlier, just a few weeks ago, we learned that while bearing your cross, that your cross can't be assigned any random value that you assign to it. Remember, you can't say that, well, unemployment is my cross, as difficult as that may be, because many unbelievers are bearing that same burden. That's not a cross that we bear. Um, 
as Christ endured his cross for the love of his church, your cross and mine is that which, as a Christian, we endure what we suffer, what we sacrifice, and what we give for the welfare of his body, Christ's church. That's our cross. We bear it for the church. And, And Jesus said, I suffer, you shall suffer. I taught, you will teach. I showed you compassion, you shall show compassion. And those demands of ministry, folks, they're going to carve out a large chunk of your life. That's a fact. It's called sacrifice. When Jesus says in Matthew 11, verse 28, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. At that point, Jesus didn't roll up a recliner. He he didn't offer early retirement and and boats and fishing poles and a life of ease and everything that we want to relax and do. His yoke is easy and his burden is light because he saved us from the the fruitless and, and futile pursuit of legalistic righteousness. His grace is easy compared to trying to earn your way to heaven. That's what he's talking about. He didn't release us from sacrificial service for his church. That's not what an easy yoke means. Actually, he enlisted us, folks. He enlisted us, and these three men in our passage today, they confess with their mouth, Jesus is Lord. Yes, the first one calls him master, we see in Matthew chapter 8. But you get the point. Each of these are implied that they're willing to follow Jesus. But each wants special considerations attached to their enlistment. The last two are even seeking a delay in service. And to show and to add to this how we learned last week that Jesus had informed his disciples that his destination is now Jerusalem. Remember, he set his face to go to Jerusalem where he will suffer and where he will die. And then already the first village that they encounter uh, in Samaria has already turned them away, rejected them. Uh, yet the, le- the level of sacrifice up to this point, I hope you would agree, pretty minuscule, folks. Pretty minuscule. Uh, they haven't been bearing that cross for long, all right? And reading to you, beginning in verse 57 of Luke chapter 9, it says, as they were going along the road, this is after they were turned away from the the first village, as they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, The foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. And Jesus said to another, Follow me. But he said, Lord, permit me first to go and bury my father. But Jesus said to him, Allow the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim everywhere the kingdom of God. Another also said, I will follow you, Lord, but first permit me to say goodbye to those at home. But Jesus said to him, No one, after putting his hand to the plow and looking back, is fit for the kingdom of God. I heard a Dallas seminary professor at one point refer to these uh, three men as Mr. Too Hasty, Mr. Too Hesitant, and Mr. Too Homesick. The first here is Mr. Too Hasty. 
too hasty. He's probably a little over-eager. Matthew, if you look in chapter 8 of Matthew's account of this event, Matthew identifies him as a Jewish scribe, all right, uh, who addresses Jesus respectfully. He calls him teacher, or your translation might say master, or schoolmaster. It's an endearing term of respect. In my mind, you'll have to decide if you agree with this or not. I kind of picture him as the Johnny-come-lately to Jesus' ministry. Just kind of showing up all of a sudden. And there, and there seems to be an uneasiness in the air with Jesus and his disciples right now. There's an uneasiness, an anxiety, and, and a couple of them are even seeking to leave due to this uneasiness. Uh, the road to the cross is getting a little bit intense. It's getting real. Very real. Um, this guy seems to kind of pop out of nowhere and say, uh, Hey, you know, Jesus, I'll follow you uh, wherever you go. He must have missed the group text or whatever that Jesus sent out that said, I'm on the way to Jerusalem, all right? That's where I'm going. I'm going to die there. So, so the scribe must be some of a, somewhat of a newcomer because he doesn't really seem to know the plan. I'll just follow you wherever. Jesus is going to die. And, and add to this that the, the scribe, or he would be a Jewish scholar, he would have been used to receiving uh, financial compensation for his work, uh, for his service. And, and that might shed a lot of light on his motivation. Uh, when Jesus gives a reply, the foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Essentially, Jesus says, I don't have any material provisions to offer you. I don't have anything to give you. Did, did you notice, by the way, we just got evicted from a Samaritan village? I don't have anything to offer you. What a contrast to what Jesus told the crowds previously. Not to worry. Don't worry about what you'll put on or don't worry about what you'll wear. Don't worry about what you'll eat. Just follow me. Here instead, he responds to this man, I don't have anything. I don't have anything to offer you. Why might Jesus say that to this particular man? Why might he say it to him? It's likely because so often, we see this so often with Jesus, when an individual addresses him, Jesus often responds to that individual and the heart condition of that individual, that specific person. As he told the rich young ruler, go sell everything that you own. That wasn't a command to all of us. He was, he was penetrating that rich young ruler's heart to expose his love of money. It, it was a specific and individual command. Um, here Jesus seems to cut to the chase with this scribe, this man for hire, um, saying, you know, before we ever get to the point of negotiating benefits, I ain't got nothing. I don't have anything. I don't even have a place to lay my head you better know that before you say, I'll follow you wherever you go. You know, we don't approach Jesus in repentance as if there's a nearing payday. As Jesus walked this planet, uh, all he had were the garments that he wore. And even the Roman soldiers cast lots for them. He, he didn't have anything. Why would we demand anything different? Why would we anticipate uh, that becoming a Christian and following Jesus pays 
somehow, that it pays. It doesn't pay, folks. It costs. That's the point Jesus is trying to get across, and especially in this chapter. It costs to follow Jesus. Neither him nor any of his disciples provide the church any indication that they amassed wealth, that they financially prospered while on earth. Really, the evidence is quite the contrary. Very contrary to that. Uh, that's why the prosperity gospel, the, no, uh, the notion that you give, everybody should give so that God can give you back, that, that's just so repulsive. Just so repulsive. And then they, they dare to suggest you know, that, that it really works. What a selfish motive. To give, to get. Um, those people, they, they just don't get it. They just don't get it. Following Jesus costs. And the tone of Jesus' reply implies that the scribe might have been thinking somehow there must be a silver lining in this somewhere. But the fact needs to be emphasized, really, to people in ministry, missionaries, pastors, others, um, you don't enter the ministry for the money. You you don't do that. There, There isn't big money in ministry. There isn't. And if there is, folks, something's wrong. Something's wrong. If there's big money in ministry, something's wrong or else the pastor's money came from elsewhere. Perhaps an inheritance or a previous business they had. Who knows, maybe the lottery. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. But I think the scribe catches Jesus' innuendo, what he's implying. I think this scribe catches Jesus' point and he turns and walks away. I'll tell you why I think he turns and walks away a little bit later. In verse 59, we're introduced to Mr. Too Hesitant. Too Hesitant. And Jesus said to another, follow me. But he said, Lord, permit me to first go and bury my father. But Jesus said to him, allow the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim everywhere the kingdom of God. We won't know for certain until we get to heaven. Uh, But as I alluded earlier, I I think what we're witnessing is kind of another small fallout of Jesus' ministry. Smaller than the one previously after the feeding of the 5,000 because there's just less people there. Um, This is on a smaller scale. In fact, Matthew suggests with this second fellow here that he is actually a disciple of Jesus. Actually a disciple, one of the current disciples. And my impression is that there's some kind of upheaval, right or wrong, that's my impression, amongst some who are remaining now, or have remained with Christ, who have hung in there after the mass defection that we saw earlier. But now they're really weighing the ultimate cost of following Jesus. It's really getting real. And the mood's surely more serious They got turned away from the Samaritan village. Jesus has assured them that there is more to come. There's more to come. Uh, But thus far, they've only had this small amount of affliction. Uh, These are the ones, says Christ, Mark 4, verse 16, on whom the the seed was sown on the rocky places, who when they hear the word immediately receive it with joy. They have no firm root in themselves, though, but are only temporary. Then when affliction or persecution arises because of the word, Immediately they fall away. Any sign of affliction, they just fall away. And at the same time period, you look at John chapter 7, the Gospel of John chapter 7. He informs us 
that Jesus and his disciples realize the Jews in Judea are seeking to kill him. They know that. The Jews in Judea are seeking to kill him. Large numbers have defected. That would leave any group remaining uneasy. You got a whole bunch of people left. The remaining ones who hung around long enough to strike out to Jerusalem with Jesus uh, certainly would have to determine, you know, did we do the right thing? Did we do the right thing staying or should we have gone? Because often it's just really easier to leave. Just easier to leave. Um, Of these three, this guy is the most disappointing. Most disappointing because he's notably identified in the Gospels as a disciple of Jesus. But his loyalty, it's wavering to the point where Jesus has to reassert an earlier command, follow me. Jesus has to tell him to follow me. It's the identical command that he gave Peter and James and John. Their response was to drop their nets, remember? They dropped their nets. This man says, possibly with a large lump in his throat, Lord, permit me first, permit me first to go bury my father. You know, he's been with Jesus long enough to realize that the hazards of the job are increasing. So, so he reaches for the ejection cord to pull out of the ministry. You know, Nathan, I wonder what workman's comp was for Jesus. We're talking this week about a first draft of a budget for next year and you're weighing things like workman's comp and, of course, Mary gets on the phone and they ask, you know, what are the risks involved in, in, in the ministry that your employees are, are part of, you know? I can just imagine the insurance agent calling Jesus. is like, well, what's your plan? I'm going to Jerusalem to die. Well, what about the other people with you? Oh, yeah, they're hurting too. Bad stuff is going to happen. They know bad things are going to happen since they're out, the Judeans are out to kill him. Mr. Too Hesitant, he doesn't want to risk his life. He, he doesn't want to bear his cross. He doesn't want to follow Jesus all the way to the end. The very thing that Jesus requires of anyone who calls him their Lord by name. Every disciple himself, herself, everyone must bear their cross and follow him. This man prioritizes instead something else. It's family. He said, Lord, permit me first to go and bury my father. That initially sounds dignified enough. What he's saying is, I want to put my family before your kingdom. Will Jesus settle for second place? We're going to discover a little later on when we hit chapter 14 of Luke. He says, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not carry his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Stringent demands? Oh, you bet. You bet. Unreasonable? Not for the king of the universe. Not for the person who is giving the command. They're not unreasonable demands. Mr. Too Hesitant, he isn't ready. Of course, that statement by Jesus is is hyperbole. He isn't suggesting that you don't appropriately care for your family, but he's got to remain number one. He's got to be first. 
And you can't lay down your cross once you have picked it up. There are numerous veins of thought concerning this man's father. He almost surely has not just died. That's not the point. He may be sick. He might just be older. More likely, Junior here wants to delay his sacrifice by returning home. He's more concerned about preserving his present life than prioritizing Jesus. And during the Apostle Paul's darkest hour, he wrote to Timothy this, Make every effort to come to me soon, for Demas, having loved this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. A deserter. A deserter. Demas. Mr. Too Hesitant prioritizes his life over Jesus. Permit me first to go bury my father. I'll go after my father dies someday. I'll collect my inheritance and then I'll be back to follow you someday. I tell you what, Jesus. I'm just going to lay my cross right here down by the road. And and when the timing's right, I'm going to come back and I'm going to pick it up again. Someday. Someday. And of these three, it's the most common scenario that we encounter as pastors and elders. It's thorny soil. Thorny soil. The worries, the riches, and pleasures of the world, it, it chokes them out. I'll volunteer someday. I'll do hospital visitations Someday. I'll attend to the widows and the orphans and their needs. Someday. I'll serve the church. Someday. Just not today. Just not today. Uh, And you know, you all have been nice, but you've been talking a lot about prioritizing Christ and laying the world aside here recently. Uh, My seat's getting a little hot. Sometimes people think, can you save my seat for me? Can you save my seat? Um... I'll be back to shoulder my cross again someday. Someday. Did Christ hesitate to make strong or stringent demands of his disciples? No. He didn't didn't hesitate. Um, The willingness to respond to the demands indicates a true believer, the real deal. I can't tell you how many people you run into in ministry here and elsewhere throughout your life who are in, like this disciple was, eventually fall away, not because something has changed in what the ministry is, not because the ministry has changed, the location has changed, that the um, doctrinal statement has changed, or that that personality has changed, but just because bearing the cross of Christ's church costs so much. It costs so much. And that price, that sacrifice, that cost on Jesus' disciples, it, it interferes with the love affair of the world. That's what it does. That's what bearing the cross does. Does Christ hesitate to call people to sacrifice? Not at all. Never. Was he afraid of people running off or falling away? No. Did the Apostle Paul even not refrain from calling them out by name? I'm not going to do that today. Um, 
having a large number fall away from Jesus that have happened now in his ministry didn't discourage him. It didn't discourage him, so it doesn't discourage a pastor because we see it's so prevalent in Scripture, those who fall away. And it actually what it does, it really makes you appreciate those who hang in there to the end. Those strong ones who hang in till the end. Does anybody remember? We know how many men. We don't have a number for women. But how many men, besides the twelve, of course, just counting Judas in that, but how many men, besides the twelve, hung in with Jesus from the time of his baptism by John the Baptist all the way until his resurrection? How many men hung with him the whole time of his ministry? Two. Matthias and Justice. He's also called Joseph. Two. Those were the only two candidates that they could find after the ascension of Jesus to fill Judas's um, uh, seat after Judas committed suicide. They had to find someone who had been with Jesus from the very beginning all the way until they witnessed the resurrection. Two. So we shouldn't be surprised... When people fall away, um, does Christ suggest then with these passages during his ministry and people are coming, people are going, does it suggest we should just lower our expectations of a disciple of Jesus Christ? You know, just so, so that anyone can hang in there. Make it really easy so everybody can hang in there uh, and continue their relationship with the world. Obviously not. Obviously not. That's not the model that Jesus uh, uh, adopts. What he does is he dismisses Mr. Too Hesitant. Uh, the proper approach for him would have been allow the world to take care of the world affairs. Uh, he says, allow the dead to bury their own dead. Boy, there's a whole sermon in there for someday. I'm not going to touch it today. Allow the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, Jesus speaking to this uncommitted man, this superficial man, as for you, go. Go. Proclaim everywhere the kingdom of God. Do I, do I think that Jesus' command to him to proclaim the kingdom of God as he goes suggests this man is a believer? Uh, I, not to me, no, I don't think so. No, From the context of the next verse, I think not. He, but even unbelievers have been known to preach the kingdom solely out of pretense. And as Paul the Apostle said, in this I will rejoice whether in pretense or in truth, as long as the kingdom is preached, I will rejoice. So Jesus dismisses him. Go. Just go. Preach what you've learned. Uh, Jesus often exhorts. He often rebukes. But when, scripture, uh, but when in Scripture people in turn and walk away from him, he lets them go. He lets them go. we got one more man here. He's Mr. Too Homesick. He's possibly overhearing these discussions, the preceding conversation that Jesus just had uh, with the other fellow. He heard Jesus' rebuke to him. He also wants to leave. But he tries to soften his request just a little bit. In verse 61, he says, I will follow you, Lord. But first, again, first, permit me to say goodbye to those at home. 
Well, in some sense, he's kind of wavering just like the previous character, Mr. Too Hesitant, but he's wanting to sound spiritual as he employs the request Elisha made to Elijah. I read that event to you in 1 Kings chapter 19 earlier during our scripture reading. In essence, this man almost seems to be suggesting to Jesus that if Elijah permitted Elisha to return home, give his parents a kiss, say a goodbye, certainly Jesus would honor that request, right? Certainly you would honor what Elijah did. Wrong answer. Wrong answer. Jesus' response to him implies he picks up on Mr. Too Homesick uh, point. He understands what he's referring to. And in 1 Kings 19 verse 20, Elisha says to Elijah, Please let me kiss my father and my mother. Then I will follow you. And Elijah granted that request. After saying goodbye to mom and dad, Elisha then returned. He burned his plow. He butchered his oxen, which he fed to the people. This was all, of course, Elijah symbolically um, displaying his permanent commitment to the prophetic ministry he was inheriting. Not returning back to the plow and the oxen his previous life. It's a symbolic gesture. And certainly, Jesus, you wouldn't have more stringent requirements than Elijah. Oh, actually, Jesus says, I would. I would. This earns the strongest rebuke of all three. This guy also misunderstands priority, what needs to be done first. His request, first, permit me to say goodbye to those at home. Then I'll return. I'll I'll burn the plow, I'll kill the oxen. I'll pick up my cross again later. I I think this really angers Jesus. It's a strong rebuke. Because this man exploits a passage from Scripture... To establish a principle so as to excuse and benefit himself. He wants to be excused from a full and immediate commitment to Christ. He wants to delay it. He uses scripture to excuse his disobedience. Can we ever do that? Are we ever guilty of that? Finding a verse somewhere, pulling it from context, and trying to apply it to excuse my disobedience. Yeah, yeah, God doesn't like that. God doesn't like that. Um, so Jesus, tur- Jesus turns the table on him by altering the illustration. Not only, Jesus suggests, is your obligation to me greater and of more immediate concern than Elisha had to Elijah, but I'll adjust the illustration to magnify that even greater commitment Once you decide to pick up your cross and follow me, you not only are not allowed to go back and say goodbye, you're not even allowed to look back. No one, Jesus said, after putting his hand to the plow and looking back, is fit for the kingdom of God. Having... A few years' experience in farming myself, I can assure you that when you plow, whether that's with a John Deere or with draft horses or with a pair or a yoke of oxen, you don't look back if you hope to keep your path straight. You must keep your eye looking forward, straight ahead, 
if you look back, your path is going to be crooked and all over the place. It doesn't work. Elisha, uh, the experienced plowboy, would tell you, the oxen sit ahead of you, the plow sits ahead of you, and you control by the reins. You maintain control by steering the oxen, always looking forward. Always looking forward. A plowman would never look back, ever. Because there's no reason to look back. Everything's ahead of you. The end of the furrow is ahead of you. The only thing that looking back could do was make your path crooked. That's the only thing you can accomplish by looking back. You're going to end up with a crooked path. You always plow to the end of the furrow by looking forward. Even on a tractor nowadays, when the implement is pulled from behind rather than in front of you with the the oxen, um, if you continually look back, oh, you're losing your way. I guarantee you, you're losing a way. Any farmer even today, would assure you, you never plow by looking back. You always look forward. So it is with the kingdom of God. You don't look back, you don't turn back. All the greats in the hall of faith of Hebrews 11, whether they were mocked or tortured or sawn in two, they always looked ahead. That writer says, Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross again before him. He endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. For he says, you have not resisted yet to the point of shedding blood in the striving against sin. Jesus could declare to these disciples, you haven't even seen or endured anything yet. No real persecution, no no real affliction, And you're already wanting to look back. You're already wanting to turn your back on me. And they just don't get it. They don't get it. And this generation of Christians, quote-unquote Christians today, in America, we've never seen nor endured anything. No persecution. Not in this generation. No real affliction. Yet so many falling away falling away and turning. They're they're like these three. They're like these three. Are they truly followers of Christ? Unlikely. Unlikely. Uh, The modern model or movement, seeker movement, whatever you want to call it, is way too slow of calling people to sacrifice. Way, way too slow. Uh, Jesus did not suffer that problem at all. His call to bear the cross separates the wheat from the chaff. My old pastor, Tom Nelson, used to remind us from time to time that if the rapture were to happen today, there'd be plenty of people left to turn the lights out. We don't want that, folks, to be you. Because the Bible doesn't offer us an option of auto-steer. 
You know what otter steer is? That's what those farmers got now. With, with, a, with a computer and everything in their cab and satellite guidance, the tractor steers itself. It's the craziest thing. But they got perfectly straight lines, even though they're not paying attention. And, and, and uh, they program it, and in the meantime, the farmer can be checking Facebook or doing selfies and all kinds of different things because he doesn't even have to worry about where he's going. He can even look back if he wants, and the tractor just keeps on going. That's what some churches are offering today. I'm sorry. Just come in. We'll, we'll program you up. You don't have to worry about where you're going. We'll take care of that. We just want you to relax and enjoy the scenery and look around. Um, don't have to carry your cross during the week. Just come in on Sundays. Pretend to carry it on Sunday. Set it aside as you need as the world chokes you out Monday through Saturday. No. You can't take your eyes off Jesus. You must take, off, uh, take up your cross and follow him all the way to the furrow. There is no looking back. As Jesus experienced, some will follow for a while. When persecution comes, when affliction arises, when the pleasures of the world's call, most will fall away. Most will fall away. We haven't had enough persecution in the U.S. to even get a glimpse of what most falling away looks like. We have to look to Scripture. But you and I shall follow. We will bear the weight of the cross, which bears uh, and builds Christ's church. And in our bodies, we will bear the brand marks of Jesus Christ as a true servant. For once you have by the power of Christ's Spirit, decided to follow Jesus, there is no looking back. There is no turning back. Our time is up. I'll let you know next week why I think these three were not the real deal in the next passage. Let's pray.